0: You're listening to the feed.
1: This is the feed.
0: This is the feed. The feed. You're listening to the feed. In Markham. In Richmond Hill. You're listening to the feed in Vaughan.
1: In Stoville.
2: In Woodbridge. In Unionville. New Year and welcome to The Feed. I'm Ann Romer. This is York Region's only news magazine show dedicated to the issues, events, and stories that matter to all of us who live and work here. Today, a very special and unique donation for the frontline workers at South Lake. Also, tax tips. Yeah, already. But we begin with help for businesses large and small. The entire province is in lockdown right now in an effort to stop the alarming increase in COVID-19 cases. The virus is ripping Ontario apart. The health of its people is dangerously at risk. The economy is facing almost insurmountable challenges. And many businesses province-wide are drowning in the wake of the pandemic's second wave. The vaccine, yes, offers a huge beacon of hope. But the trickle-down effect for businesses might be too little too late. To talk about much-needed help right now for businesses and for people in Ontario is Vic Fidelli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade. Thank you for joining us on the feed.
3: Thank you very much, Anne. You certainly uh, didn't sugarcoat anything there. It was very important to to acknowledge why stricter measures are required to prevent our health, uh, our, our capacity from being overwhelmed and, quite frankly, to safeguard the most vulnerable people we have. Um, and for those that we care for. We want to save lives, and so we have a province-wide shutdown right now.
2: So what is the government prepared to do? We're just at the early, early, early days of a brand-new year, 2021. What is your government prepared to do to help Ontario businesses?
3: Well, uh, part of the issues that we're seeing are and people need to understand that you can go to a supermarket and a convenience store um, and other food stores, the capacity is limited to 50%, and people still need to stay two meters apart and those types of things. When it comes to the discount on the big box re- retailers that sell groceries and pharmaceuticals, They can remain open, uh, but at a far lower limit. So those are 25% capacity. But we still say to people from the Chief Medical Officer of Health, unless you need groceries or medicine, don't leave your house. That's really what this lockdown is all about. Uh, But for those businesses who are within restricted zones or completely shut down, there, there are programs that we have that are available, and they're available uh, right now for them. Um, we have, a, um, we have a, a small business support grant, and this is up to $20,000 per business uh, that will help them if they have uh, had a decline of, of uh, up to uh, of 20% loss in business over the last year. So this is, uh, 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 everybody that applies will get a minimum of $10,000, and you can receive up to $20,000. And again, that money is available for every business who was required to close or even significantly restrict their services, so restaurants that have had to do uh, takeout uh, and delivery only. This is $20,000 available for every single business.
2: And let's understand the word grant, does that mean that the money does not have to be paid back?
3: It does not have to be paid back. They can use that support in whatever way makes the most sense for them. You know, some will will, uh, uh, use it to maintain their inventory, but you can use it for anything you want. It's your money. It does not need to be
2: repaid. Interesting. I I looked at your Twitter feed, or maybe I saw this on your website, but the words hassle-free are in there too. So it's up to $20,000 hassle-free for small business owners. That's pretty important.
3: Yes, you go on the website, you apply, and you get a check. That's really what uh, we're trying to do, it as seamlessly and as quickly as possible. We want you to be compensated for the fact that uh, we are in a... Uh, lockdown in the province of Ontario.
2: Let's discuss the property tax and energy bill rebate. Who is that for and why is that important?
3: Yeah, this uh, is also more monies that are available. It's every business that is uh, required to shut down again or restrict um, can apply online right now at Ontario.ca and you'll get a grant for all of your property tax for every day that you're closed and for your energy bill for every day that you're closed. So this is uh, uh, basically every one of the businesses, uh, restaurants, bars, gyms, bingo halls, uh, you know, meeting venues, uh, any, any businesses that have been affected are entitled to Uh, this uh, energy assistance and the tax assistance.
2: Now, the word grant seems to be the common thread through this. The Main Street Relief Grant, again, who's that for? And, And is it something that makes sense during a lockdown?
3: So the first one was 20000 The second one, property taxes, uh, up at whatever your property taxes were. The third one was the energy bill, whatever your energy bills were. The fourth one here is the Ontario Main Street Relief Grant, and it is $1,000. And what it is intended, this has some restrictions now. So this is for businesses between two and nine employees in retail, accommodation, food services, repair, maintenance. You know, there's a list, personal services, gyms, yoga studios, that type of thing. It's a $1,000, a one-time grant, again, non-repayable grant, and it's a $1,000 program. And so there's, uh, uh, we, we expect about 60,000 businesses to apply for that.
2: Minister Fideli, do you think if you combined all of this, if a small business man, woman, person, or small business itself was eligible, is it enough to get through the current lockdown?
3: Well, these are very uh, unusual times, and they called for a lot of unusual measures. And so we've always been able to sort of read and react. And uh, all along, right from day one, we've been there with business supports. You know, uh, And sometimes we're partnered with the federal government. Sometimes they're on their own. Sometimes we're on our own. For the most part, most businesses in Ontario can have up to 95% of their rent paid for, About 65 to 75% of their employees' uh, wages paid for. Now you've got things like the um, support to business, this uh, small business uh, support grant. You've got uh, some of your bigger bills that you get, your recurring bills every month, are your hydro bill and your tax bill. Well, those are now covered. So you've got rent, employees, all these bills that are covered—a thousand-dollar grant. There's other things like a twenty-five-hundred-dollar digital Main Street uh, program you can apply for as well to help you go online to compete with the Amazons of the world. Uh, so you don't just have your own street in your own city, but you can be selling worldwide. So I think we're reacting properly with every program. We've got programs for families. We've got programs for seniors. Uh, at home, for instance, uh, there's a period of the next 28 days where uh, hydro will be billed at the lowest price. That's eight and a half cents, 24 hours a day. That's to help uh, uh, families at home. We've also got $200 for uh, every uh, child uh, uh, 12 and under, $250 if, they're, if they have special needs and they'll be under 21. Um, we're expanding it uh, uh, now in 2021 to include a one-time payment of $200 to help with education expenses for those children who are 13 and over. Um, the seniors they had their guaranteed annual income system automatically doubled. So we're we're reading and reacting as as we go. And I guess the short answer, <laughs> and <Anne, laughs> would have been, you know, it, 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 it's, it's there to help now and we'll see what's needed in the future and, and make further decisions.
2: And what is needed from us, the citizens of Ontario, during this lockdown to prevent it from it being extended or ha- having happen again later in uh, the year 2021?
3: Well, those strict measures that are in place are, are required right now to prevent our health system from reaching over capacity. So we need you to stay home. Well, you know, they're, 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 we really do want to limit you going out for groceries and for uh, any medicine that you need. Other than that, stay home. This is what we're trying to encourage you to do. Yes, there's essential businesses that are opening. Yes, we're keeping our... our Uh, uh, construction and manufacturing open. These are part of worldwide global supply chains that uh, would really affect our future. So we have the safest uh, uh, way possible to open these uh, essential services. They're following the Ministry of Labor's guidelines. We've hired more inspectors. They're out there, they're visiting businesses. Uh, And so, you know, do your part and stay home.
2: Can you tell that to the hundreds of vehicles that are parked at a big box store near our station at Highway 407? I, as I drove to come in and do this interview with you just after New Year's this weekend, I was astonished to see that it was jammed to the rafters with cars and people.
3: Yeah, that's very disappointing to hear. Uh, you know, those retailers um, uh, who do sell groceries and. Uh, pharmaceuticals are allowed to be open. Again, the whole idea was we we shrunk their capacity to 25% to deter people. They'll see the lineups and say, well, I I don't really need that right now and not be out any longer. That's the whole idea of cutting them down to a 25% capacity. But we need people to help. Look, uh, this needs to work uh, or the Chief Medical Officer of Health Uh, The health table, our cabinet, will have to sit down and look at where we go in the future if this province-wide shutdown is not followed by people.
2: Where can people go if they want more information about the various supports that you are offering, the Government of Ontario is offering?
3: Ontario.ca. It is a great website. It's really easy to find everything that you need. Um, You go there and you'll find all that is COVID, all that is support-related for you. Uh, you'll find that it's an excellent source.
2: Vic Fidelli, Minister of Economic Development, Job Creation and Trade, thank you for giving us your time on the feed.
3: And it's always a pleasure uh, to you and yours. uh, Happy New Year and the best of 2021.
2: And you as well. Thank you. For those planning an eventual return to the workplace, it may not be business as usual. Tina Cortez with The Legal Advice.
0: John Craig is a labor, employment, and human rights lawyer, and he's also a professor at Osgoode Hall and the University of Western Ontario. John, thank you for joining us on The Feed. My pleasure. Now, in the coming months, there will be multiple COVID-19 vaccines available in this country. Across the country, companies large and small are anxious to get back to work and resume operations. To do that, and I'm going to ask you, John, can an employer force an employee to be vaccinated before returning to the workplace?
1: Well, I think there's, there's been a lot of discussion about this specific issue. It's very top of mind for many people. And an employer cannot physically force an employee to take a vaccine. I mean, that would be, that would be an assault <laughs> under common law and maybe even a crime to force somebody to grab their arm and stick a needle in the middle. Of course not. But an employer can, can, can impose reasonable conditions for attendance in the workplace or for continuing to perform work uh, for the employer. So I think that's the, that's the perspective from from the legal side that we we need to be looking at, can an employer um, make it a condition, for example, that an employee um, has to provide evidence of having received one of these vaccines that's been um, accepted by the government? And and you know what what should an employer do to address situations where employees either um, have not been able to or have refused? To, um, to take those vaccines. I think that's the, the legal paradigm we need to look at. And, and the question <laughs> to get, you know, drill down to the specific point, you know, can an employer impose those conditions? You, you have to start from the, the, the perspective that uh, an employer who is unionized is gonna be dealing with the issue differently than an employer who's non-union, and, and well, why is that? Because there will be, for the unionized employer, collective agreement obligations, including generally an obligation to act reasonably in terms of the imposition of these kinds of conditions on employees. And a union will be able to enforce those rights at arbitration. Um, so, so the unionized employer is going to have a different paradigm than a non union employee. A non union employee is going to be looking at their, their, their statutory obligations, particularly their obligation to provide a, a healthy and safe workplace under occupational health and safety legislation they're going to be looking at, you know, to the extent that there is anything in their employment contracts they need to be concerned about, they'll be looking at that. But ultimately your non-union employer is going to be, you know, perhaps in a, in a better legal position to determine what kind of conditions have to be imposed on employees before they can either return to the workplace or, or continue to perform their, their job functions. So, so I think we need to think about it a little differently, unionized employers versus non-unionized employers.
0: So it doesn't sound like an easy answer at all, but what advice do you have then for an employer who is trying to to balance that? You know, that labor law demands that companies keep their employees safe, but they also have to balance that with their human rights. How do you do that in reality?
1: Yeah, the the, the important point here, I think, is to consider... You know, each, each particular workplace, the type of work, the dangers and risks that are in place for that workplace and for that kind of work. I mean, I think that's really important to contextualize uh, each particular situation. We're dealing with um, a global pandemic, a virus that is highly contagious, that is deadly, that is something that we haven't really dealt with in our, in our, our legal system before from the perspective of these kinds of issues. And, and it needs to be, I think, addressed in a very different way than, you know, we've, we've had cases dealing with the flu vaccine and with other kinds of, of health issues. But this is very different. And so I think we have to, we have to look at it in context based on, on, on the the particular situation of, of the, the virus itself and also the kinds of workplaces where, you know, if, if I'm legal counsel, I'm looking at that workplace and I'm trying to decide what the appropriate balance should be. Um and there's another layer here that I think is important. It isn't just the the whole issue of what the law will will allow or will prevent. And and often you know lawyers will you know hopefully we can often give you know clear answers. But but you often hear from lawyers as I'm sure you're aware it depends. Uh, you know, there are a lot of factors taking place. It's a very new issue. We're not sure. You know. But there's also another layer that. I think employers, employees, and trade unions have to think about, which is human resource, industrial relations, and, and a constructive workplace. And I think you know my advice to my clients and my advice generally is to think about these issues, not just from strict legal rights, but also from what makes sense. So, I think many employers are going to decide that they would prefer to take an approach of promoting, of educating, of addressing concerns that employees have, rather than taking a hardline approach and saying it's a condition of employment that if you want to work for us, you have to get the vaccine. I think that's what a lot of employers will be doing. That's what I'm hearing. I think a lot of trade unions will also be favoring that kind of approach. And I think workers will find that approach to be much more. Um, sensitive to the concerns they may have, and and they'll feel more like they're involved in that decision than if it's simply just a you know a hard but fast, you must do this uh, approach. So I think that's that's the first point I'd like to make. but But in terms of striking the balance, there are a couple of specific points that I can make that might be helpful for everybody. Um The first is that there are individuals who will have to be accommodated because they just can't take the vaccine. And one example that's, that's, I think, easy for everyone to get their mind around is that some people do have past allergic reactions to vaccines, and we've seen documentation of that in the media already. So for those individuals, it may be risky for them to take the vaccine, and there is a duty to accommodate in human rights legislation. So we have to think about those who, for, for reasons that are personal to them, Um, they're protected by human rights legislation. If they are unable to take the vaccine, they will be subject to the duty to accommodate under human rights legislation. That's an important point to to bring out at first. It's gonna be a fairly narrow group, mind you, but, but it's important because there are human rights issues involved there. Um, we have the right of privacy. Privacy is a really important right. Mm-hmm. And, and many people will latch onto privacy and say, well, that's the reason why we should be, you know, reluctant to require individuals to take vaccines. But privacy is interesting in our legal system because it's always a matter of what's reasonable, a reasonable expectation of privacy. And that gets you back into the whole balancing issue, whether, you know, requiring a vaccine as a condition of employment is, is so important to protect the health and safety of um, other workers in the workplace, of those you come into contact with, with the public, you know, does that um, outweigh the value of privacy for the individual? That's how our law typically looks at it. So that's a true balancing exercise to have to engage in. So these are all, you know, sort of specific issues. There's health and safety, as you pointed out initially in your question, but there's also the, the anti-discrimination human rights accommodation piece that I mentioned, which is important. And then there's also the privacy issue. Um, but I think, by and large, you know, when you're outside the unionized sector, if an employer wants to make it a condition of employment because their employees um, are public-facing, they do have, you know, they, they do have the potential to expose members of the public or other workers to, um, to the virus, then I think, by and large, most employers who are non-union will find that their strict legal rights will allow them to make it a condition of employment that individuals have to take the vaccine. Um, You know, what are the ramifications if an individual refuses? Well, then they can't attend work because that rule is in place. Um, You know, it may not be cause for dismissal if an individual decides not to take the vaccine and not to report to work. But an employer in a non-union setting can always dismiss someone without cause. There are certain financial consequences for that. And most employers would prefer not to do that, of course. But that's just the strict sort of legal analysis that would unfold.
0: So let's park the vaccine piece for just a second and focus if an employee has specific concerns about COVID-19 and they're unwilling to work, can employer fire that employee? The,
1: uh, again, it's, it's, it's a matter I mean, we, we first have to start off with, you know, is the, is the employee in a unionized setting? Because then there are rights under collective agreements and employer has to have just cause and has to prove that they've had just cause to dismiss an employee who refuses to attend at work because they have um a, Let's say it's a genuine fear of this disease. That's in the non-union sector, you don't have that same sort of legal entitlement, you can be fired without cause. Um, But I think there are, for example, very important health and safety principles that apply here that limit any employer, whether unionized or non-unionized, any employer's ability to take negative adverse consequences against an employee for asserting a right premise in their health and safety. So if it's a legitimate concern that an employee has, the question then turns to whether the employer has taken all reasonable steps to mitigate that concern. Um, and if, if even after those steps have been taken, there's still a reasonable concern then the employer you know, ultimately has to, I think, accommodate that employee. So it, it, you know, where an employee is in a position where they do feel you know, in good faith that their health is at risk because they don't feel the safeguards are in place, um, then the employer is going to have an issue. But the, here's the other side of this this point. Um, you know, we have many essential workers who, you know, who are providing, you know, services to the elderly in long-term care homes. As an example, or are in hospitals providing health care. Frontline workers who are putting themselves at risk, you know, and, and there hasn't been a vaccine until recently. Masks aren't entirely you know, entirely safe, they provide some safety, but they're not a complete solution, and so there are risks. So some people are in jobs where there are inherent risks to their profession, and the law does does acknowledge that health and safety does have a limit where there are inherent risks to the job you do. So, you know, again, it's, it's, it's one of those issues where you sort of have to look in context, and I hate to be repetitive, but context is so important. You know, what is the nature of the workplace? What are the safeguards that are in place? Is it a reasonable concern? Can there be extra steps taken to to mitigate those concerns? Have they been taken properly? All of these factors come into play.
0: And it sounds like there are a great deal of factors that have to come into play, union, non-unionized environment. What then, John, in general terms is your advice in these unprecedented times for employers and employees?
1: Well, the advice that I have been giving is open dialogue, transparency, communication, and what I've been finding is that the workplaces that have been the most successful, where there's been a, a positive relationship um, to find solutions and to move forward with employers, unions, and employees, it would be those workplaces where there has been open dialogue, strong communication, full transparency. Um, you know, where where workers or through their union can come forward and bring these issues forward. Employers are dealing with those issues collaboratively. That's, I think, the key. And that's why earlier when I said, you know, there's the issue of strict legal rights and obligations, but there's also the whole human resource and industrial relations aspect of this, a positive constructive workplace. You know, that's going to be at the forefront, I think, of, of, of the minds of, of, of managers, union leaders, employees, and that's what I'm seeing in my practice. That's the, the main focus of discussion is how can we work these issues out together rather than you know how how can we as the employer just do some you know hardline rule, impose that at all costs. Yeah, that's not the kind of discussion that I'm currently having with my clients. No, I can't speak for everybody because of course I don't <laughs> speak to all employers and I don't have full insight, but that's the experience I've been having and I've been promoting that point. Um, strongly, but it's all about communication and dialogue and transparency to find solutions for this very, very unusual and trying time, right?
0: Absolutely. Very good advice indeed. If our listeners want to contact you, how can they do that?
1: Well, they can contact me. Um, they can contact me through my law firm website. It's, uh, it's faskins.ca, and, uh, and uh, they can also find me on the website and, and, and contact me by my email address or my phone ever on that website.
0: That's terrific. John Craig is a labor, employment, and human rights lawyer. John, thank you for joining us on the show.
1: My tremendous pleasure. Thank you for having me.
2: Ready or not, tax season is just around the corner. What you need to know is coming up.
1: Do you have a story idea for The Feed? Call us at 416-335-1059 or email info at 1059theregion.com. Ann Romer and more of The Feed coming up. This is 1059 The Region.
2: back to the feed. I'm Ann Romer, so you might not be thinking about tax season just yet, but experts are saying don't wait. Joining us next on the feed to tackle
0: money matters is Lisa Gittins. She is the senior tax expert from H&R Block. Hello, Lisa. How are you doing? Hello, and good morning to you. I'm doing well and staying safe. Now, you're familiar to listeners here at 105.9 the region, especially around tax season. And while we're months away from that yet, What should we be doing right now to prepare for next year's tax filing season?
4: Fantastic question. Right now, while we're all safe and in our bubble, we've come to the end of what's been an unpredictable year. Everyone needs to get organized with their tax documents. For every year, it's always a scramble to locate the documents when the tax season starts in February. But you're home right now and this would be the best time to organize. So we're going to recommend that you're getting a file box or a shoe box, something where you can put specifically your tax documents all in one place. You want to have a designated space that's easily accessible. Don't put it in that throw-it-all drawer and then have to dig through it come tax time. Put your receipts in one box, label it, right on the receipts, what was this expense for. Better yet, you're at home and you have Internet access, use your computer, use your smartphone, scan those receipts and keep them in an accessible folder that's easy to
0: click and open come tax time. You mentioned receipts specifically. What other documents should we be getting ready and prepared and filing away right now? Perfect. So, remembering
4: that Revenue Canada requires your employers, if you're employed, to issue you a T4 slip, which shows the income you've earned for the year. Now those slips will typically come out by the end of February and they're gonna be in your email box um, because not everything gets mailed out all the time. So tracking your email, making sure that tax documents there are saved like the tax slips. If you are investing, if you have your uh, TFSAs or other types of investments, making sure you have your portfolio summaries and those T-slips also saved in a secure place. You have, we, I stress receipts, because at this time, we have a lot of people who have been working from home. And as you work from home, this may be an unusual circumstance for you. So you've spent money on either supplies to be safe and sanitized or equipment to do that work. You must have those receipts in order to be able to claim those expenses on your tax return. Always keeping medical expenses. We cannot stress this enough. Yes, we haven't been able to get out to those appointments the way that we have, but you've still been paying for your prescriptions, and you've still been buying supplies, so make sure you keep those receipts in a safe place with your dates and the family members that that receipt pertains to.
0: Before we talk about the specific government supports and how, you know, we're going to be taxed on those areas, what about those who maybe feel like their employment is not assured? They fear losing their job. How can they save right now for those rainy days while they're still employed? This (laughs) It's a very good question.
4: When we think about going through this year, and we know that a lot of people have lost their jobs or businesses have temporarily closed, rule of thumb when you're talking to financial advisors, they're telling you have at least that three months of backup income. That's not always something that's going to be possible right now. But reduce your expenses as best as you can. Because you're at home, Look into maybe reducing that car insurance payment. Because you're at home, reducing your expenses. Yes, you may be purchasing meals outside, but try purchasing meals at home, doing things that you can cook at home. Really, it's just setting aside income that would get you through for at least three months. That may be a saving strategy, as I said, to reduce your expenses, Or you might be that type of savvy investor who's sitting at home and using the time to build up your investment portfolios. Either way, it comes back to whatever your strategy is, make sure you're keeping track of documents, showing what you've spent, showing how you've invested, because all of those items are related to the tax return that you file for 2020.
0: Okay, so let's switch gears a little bit and talk about the government supports that were available during the pandemic. What about those who received the CERB, the Canada Emergency Response Benefit? Is that considered taxable income? Yes, it is taxable
4: income. And the CERB is added to your income. So if you were working at any time during 2020, and then you lost your job and collected the CERB, it is the gross income that you earned for the year that you're going to be taxed on. Remembering in Ontario and across Canada, the federal tax rate is 15% on the first $48,535 that you earned. And I say that number because let's say 40000 is what you earned from work. You collected an extra 8000 from the CERB for when you weren't working. That is $48,000 earned in the year that you will have to pay 15% federal tax on. Now, the $40,000 that you earned from your employer, they were deducting tax at the source. But the 8000 or the amount coming to you from CERB is taxable and no tax has been deducted from Revenue Canada when they paid it out. So you can expect to owe tax when you file at the end of the year.
0: Okay, so that's very clear. Make, makes lots of sense. What about those, and we've heard these stories, about those who accidentally received double sur payments at the start of the pandemic? At tax time, are they supposed to pay that overage back? Well, what we see happening right now, and this is a very
4: timely question, a number of individuals are getting letters, and you want to receive specific documentation from Revenue Canada that will tell you if you received a double payment or any type of payment you weren't entitled to. What Revenue Canada is asking is that they pay the amounts back by December 31st. If you're able to make that repayment by December 31st, it means that income is not taxable to you. Yes, you received it, but you repaid it, so there will be no tax consequence. If, however, you have used that money for your living expenses and your rent, you're not going to be able to repay the amount in full. And anything that you received in 2020, but you were not able to repay, you will get a tax slip from Revenue Canada and... Come income tax time when you file, you will pay income tax on the amount, plus you will still be having to repay
0: what you received in error. Okay. Now, what about those who are self-employed and had to shut down for a while? Does that impact the information that they use to file?
4: Now, that's an excellent question again. So if you're self-employed, you were working from January to March, you know that you've been keeping track of your income and your expenses for those three months. When you shut down, you may not have been able to shut off all of your expenses. If you were renting a separate building, you may still have had to maintain payments to keep your lease or your utilities on. You may still have been paying out things for your internet, website usage, so you're still going to keep track of your income and all of your expenses for 2020. And when you file as self employed, your income may be reduced for 2020. Your expenses may be reduced, but you're still reporting expenses for the entire year. Even though you may not have generated income for the entire year. So, for you, especially that self employed individual, this is a great time to get organized with your receipts.
0: Okay, so one final piece of advice for our listeners in terms of their personal finances. Lisa, what have you got for them?
4: Get organized. This program is very timely because I'm hoping that we will be able to answer your questions and maybe arm you with the right questions. Remember, H&R Block, we've been providing tax advice for over 60 years. There's over 1,000 offices in Canada, and we are available to help you. So asking the right question at this time will help you to prepare and avoid unpleasant surprises next year when you file your tax.
0: That's good advice for sure. Avoid the rush, avoid the panic. If our listeners want more information, where can they find it?
4: We're available at www.hrblock.ca. All of the questions that we've answered today are posted on our website. Office locations are posted, as well as access to our online software, as well as our remote tax expert. So we have tax experts like myself working remotely who are willing to answer your questions, prepare the return for you, or help you to get your documents ready.
0: And you have certainly been helpful to us for sure. Lisa Gittins, Senior Tax Expert from H&R Block, thank you so much once again for joining us on the feed. Great information. Thank you for having us. Have a great day. Stay safe.
2: Next on the feed, how one company is helping the frontline workers at Southlake. Afua Ba with that story.
5: As a way to help healthcare workers who've been working countless hours during this pandemic, Canadian sleep company Endy provided a number of mattresses to South Lake Regional Health Centre in order to help these healthcare workers uh, get just a few moments of rest while they continue to protect the community. So, joining me today to talk about this donation is Alexandra Vovodina, President and General Manager of Endy. Alexandra, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you, thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. It's our pleasure. Okay, so I don't want to give the details away. If you can talk to me about this great partnership between ND and Southlake Regional Health Centre.
6: Sure, yeah. So um, not too long ago, wife of one of the physicians from Southlake actually has reached out to us and she's mentioned to us that her husband has thrown out his back a few times in the last six months. Um, And all of this is because he's been working uh, crazy late hours, um, just crazy hours because of um, the increase in COVID cases. And he's sleeping on these, on these terrible mattresses in the on-call rooms. Um, so we knew we could help. This, this is very much core to our mission of helping all Canadians get better sleep. Um, so we were excited to send the mattresses over to South Lake, And they arrived right before the holidays. And we've already heard back that they're there and they're being used and um, that the donation um, means so much to the team there.
5: So, first off, and just simply put, thank you, Alexandra, because sleep is so essential not only to physical health, but mental health. Uh, we know that a lot of these healthcare workers are working non-stop and not even getting a good night's rest. And just talk about maybe just how much a mattress is so important. It goes a long way in just to make sure that you have a good night's rest.
6: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think mattresses make play such an important role in all of our sleep, um, which is why we are so happy that we could help, um, anyone get a better night's sleep, but especially the frontline workers who are, um, really out there and not working from home and really keeping us as safe as we can be right now.
5: Absolutely. And we're hearing that other donations have been made to other hospitals in Ontario and in Canada for that matter as well. Yes, we've been trying to, not just Ontario, we've been trying to support as many hospitals and medical centers,
6: um, as we can throughout this pandemic. Um, earlier in the pandemic, we've spent, uh, mattresses to I believe seven different medical centers and we fulfilled their needs in terms of on-call rooms and giving them brand new places to sleep um, and just recently in addition to South Lake we've also supported Abbotsport in BC uh, with similar needs in terms of mattresses and on-call rooms and um, really trying to help as many frontline workers sleep better as we can. That's so wonderful
5: to hear. And we're hearing too that these donations aren't just going to the healthcare sector. You are also partnering with um, other organizations to help provide mattresses.
6: Yeah, we have an always on program um, where we've already donated uh, over 10,000 mattresses through our donation progr- uh, program. We also donate other accessories, um, but yet we partner with uh, different partners,
5: uh, both locally and in different communities. Um, some of them are furniture bank, women in need. There's so many. Absolutely. I understand. So throughout this pandemic, we know ND has been helping other organizations and helping other sectors. But ND is also a company nonetheless. I'm sure the pandemic may have affected you in some way. If you can talk a little bit about that.
6: Well, we're an e-commerce brand. Um, so as we know, e-commerce has been um, adopted uh, more because of the pandemic and the lockdowns. Um, so we're doing okay, we're working from home, we're working harder than ever, um, and we're just reminding ourselves constantly that we need to uh, give back as much as we can to the community and support the community around us.
5: And on that note, since you are an e-commerce company, for those that may not know about ND or want more information, where can they go?
6: Sure, visit us at nd.ca, um, and we'll be there. There's chat box, there's e- you can email us, or you can just browse the site.
5: Alexandra voya President and General Manager of ND, thank you so much for your time today and also on behalf of the frontline healthcare workers that the company has been helping out so far uh, with these donations that you've been making not only to the healthcare sector but to other organizations as well. Uh, Just on behalf of them, thank you so much for what you're doing.
2: I appreciate it. Thank you so much. After the break, honouring loved ones during Alzheimer's Awareness Month, this is The Feed on 105.9 The Region.
1: Follow us on Twitter at 105.9 The Region. Ann Romer and more of the feed after the break. This is 105.9 The Region.
2: Welcome back. I'm Ann Romer. January is Alzheimer's Awareness Month. It means many things to many people. Jim Lang with that story.
7: Someone who's become a friend of the show, friend of the feed, friend to, a friend to everybody in the York region of 105.9 of the region. Lauren Fried, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society of York Region, and uh, Lauren and his staff do such amazing work helping families uh, cope with uh, family members with Alzheimer's. And thrilled to join us today on the feed, Lauren. How are you, my friend?
8: I'm I'm good, Jim. Nice nice to be with you again.
7: It, it is. Uh, we are socially distanced on the phone, and because of COVID, that's a big reason. Often we do this in studio, and we think about life with COVID for able. Body people, and people with no issues, but I wonder how tough it's been for people dealing with Alzheimer's and their families with COVID nineteen.
8: Uh, it's been it's been an extraordinary, transformative experience for everybody. You know the the Alzheimer's Society of York Region. It's a it's a leader in supporting people living with dementia and their caregivers through the various phases of the disease's journey, <clears throat> and we do this by offering a wide range of services such as in-person adult day programming and offering caregivers ongoing in-person counseling and care planning and educational resources and navigational supports. So the challenge for us during COVID was how do we continue to provide ongoing uninterrupted services to people living with dementia and their care partners in the midst of a pandemic. So this is this was the great challenge for us. Uh, what we ended up doing was we ended up taking an entire range and scope of in-person services and transitioning them uh, largely to virtual programming. For instance, um, our social work team provides the counseling and navigational services to to families, about 2,000 families a year. They now had to transition their meetings to uh, uh, over the phone and uh, virtual programming. Um, Our in-person day programming, it had to innovate by transitioning it into virtual means for families. It it restarted uh, in September as an in-person program again, but under some very careful safety practices. So it's really been um, a roller coaster ride in trying to ensure that our services were provided in the midst of a pandemic.
7: And you know, Lauren, I, I mean, I applaud you and your staff and the work of the Alzheimer's Society of York Region. And one of the challenges I know my wife is dealing with with her mother with Alzheimer's is the caregivers in their long-term care home using a tablet to FaceTime. and. My yes. wife was able to see her mother, but her mom kept trying to look behind the tablet to see where my wife was. And it, and, and there was a bit of a humor to it, but it also made my wife emotional and sad. And that's the difficulty is trying to get uh, someone with Alzheimer's to connect with someone. But they can't, if they're not there in front of them, it makes it difficult.
8: You know, Jim, you're, you're absolutely right. It wasn't just a matter of of us trying to find a new way to maintain existing services virtually. But also we had to keep in mind that COVID was a crisis for many people, uh, compounding the crisis that they were already living through, providing support to a family member with dementia. During COVID, we we had to realize that people were losing jobs, and people, as you were saying, Jim, uh, were concerned about family members in long-term care, and um, not all family members had digital literacy, and so we had to find ways to provide technology sessions uh, for family members so that they could utilize some of our programming in virtual means in terms of um, uh, people who lost jobs and were suffering financially through COVID, um, this created added grief uh for families and in some cases uh, added poverty. Um, so we we found ourselves going into uh different kinds of programming that we wouldn't have previous uh before imagined, such as um, um, delivering meals on wheels uh, to individuals with dementia living on their own, or for families who are unable uh, to safely obtain nutritious foods. Uh, you know, we we set up an emergency care response fund uh, for 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 families who are now living with dementia and living uh, in poverty. So we we found ourselves not only transitioning services, but adding additional services in order to try to be there for the families that we serve.
7: Speaking with Lauren Freed, the CEO of the Alzheimer's Society York Region, January is the first month of a new year of 2021. It's it's the Alzheimer's Society, Alzheimer's Awareness Month, but also there, there's, there's a new hope for this month, this Alzheimer's Awareness Month. Lauren, I feel more than ever, the vaccines are on our soil, people feel like we're coming out of stuff. So what is the Alzheimer's Society of York Region doing in January to, to really help carry that momentum forward? We just want people to know that uh, they're not alone.
8: Um, if they are in need, uh, they could call us. We're here. We might be providing service in a bit of a different way, uh, but the service is there, and it's there for people living with some form of dementia. And so a couple of examples of that during Alzheimer's Awareness Month. One is uh, we will have a free Zoom learning series with Keep Snow, and uh, we've arranged three Uh, learning uh, sessions with her on January 21st, January 28th, and February 4th, and each is on a different topic dealing with dementia. For instance, one topic is understanding yourself as a caregiver and what you need. Hmm. Another is uh, effects of social isolation on those living with dementia. So people can register for these free Zoom sessions. We already have about 150 people registered for each session uh, but we can certainly accept many more. So that's that's one uh, initiative that we're undertaking in January. Uh, another um, is um, on January the 20th at seven o'clock we will be hosting a virtual book launch for a brand-new book we just published titled Hearts Linked by Courage, Honoring Loved Ones and Caregivers on the Dementia Journey, and, and Jim, it's a compilation of 23 touching and heartfelt stories and testimonials written by people impacted by dementia at different stages of the dementia journey. A couple of the authors will be present at the book launch to read passages from their parts of the book and, uh, and to share stories with those um, uh, attending the book launch virtually. People can get information on all of this uh, by just visiting our website. And, Jim, if it's okay, I, I, I can just give out the website. Yes, please. It's, um, yeah. It's uh, www.alzheimer york-york.com. All the information about our activities on, on um, uh, Alzheimer's Awareness Month um, is there, as, as well as um, uh, the services that we continue to provide in the midst of the pandemic.
7: And I think the key to all this, the key to everything that the Alzheimer's Society of York Region do all the time, but especially now, you are not alone, and help is there thanks to people like Lauren and his amazing staff. Lauren, I can't thank you enough. Let's hope this is a, a very productive and impactful edition of Alzheimer's Awareness Month in New York Region, and hope the next time we do this, we can see each other face-to-face, and we don't have to worry about the pandemic. Wouldn't that be a beautiful thing? Well, it, uh, well, um, you know, some people just have a,
8: a a face for radio, and that might be me, Jim. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> uh, but um, happy as always to be in studio with you, and uh, uh, but more importantly, I'm I'm happy that we've had the chance to do this uh, interview, and uh, we appreciate the message going out. Uh, on air. So, um, um, as always, Jim, it's uh, wonderful to chat with you, and, um, and uh, we're looking forward to um, a very engaging uh, Alzheimer's Awareness Month.
7: Here, here, the Feelings Mutual. Lauren, all the best, my friend, and all the best in 2021.
8: Yeah, thanks, Jim. You too. All the best.
2: When you suffer from a rare disease, you may feel like you're alone, but you're not. Ba has more.
5: You may not have heard the term butterfly children before, but it's a term to describe a rare genetic condition that affects children and adults who have epidermolysis bullosa, also known as EB. Mia Thrives is a nonprofit organization here in the country that's been created to educate the community about EB, but also here to support Canadian children and adults living with the disease. So joining me today to talk about the organization is Jill Peters, Managing Director for Mia Thrives. Jill, thank you so much for your time today. Thank you for having me. It's our pleasure. Okay, uh, first off, if you can maybe just let me know a little bit more about Mia Thrives.
9: Uh, well, Mia tried was started in 2014 uh, with the birth of Mia. Um, her mom and dad decided to start an organization in her name. Uh, she was born with ED, or epidermolysis bullosa, and it is something that her mother Melissa also has and her grandfather had. So it's, uh, it's been in their family for a long time, and with the birth of Mia, her parents really wanted to do something in her name and to create awareness So Mia Thrives was established.
5: For maybe those that may not know, if you can help me better understand uh, this uh, genetic condition.
9: Of course. Yeah, EB is something that a lot of people have not heard about. So the the name is is actually Epidermolysis bullosa, but we call it EB for short. And it is a group of rare genetic disorders characterized by um, very fragile skin. The mucous membranes and the skin is very fragile. There's severe blistering and wounds created because of the fragility of the skin. About 500,000 people worldwide are, um, have the disease. And that's usually, um, the what they're saying right now is that between 3,000 and 5,000 Canadians have EB. Uh, and children who are born with EB are often referred to as butterfly children because their skin is as fragile as a butterfly's wings. So when you hear them talk about butterfly children, that is uh, what they're referring to.
5: Thank you, Jill, then, for helping me understand what EB is. Can you also help me understand about the challenges uh, that those who have this condition face?
9: Oh, absolutely. And there are many, It's, a, uh, it's a many, many daily challenges. There are uh, four different types of EB and the, the severity ranges with, with the different types. And the severity of the wounds actually can can change on a daily basis. So I spend a lot of time with Mia of Mia Thrives. She's six years old, and to give you an example of what she deals with on a daily basis, she wakes up every morning with brand-new wounds from the day before. So her hands and feet, elbows, knees, face, uh, inside of her mouth have blisters. So she'll get blisters. What would be a simple wound on, uh, on someone else is actually a large blister or the skin has completely um, been removed from the area. So every morning is a great deal of wound care that has to be has to be done before she can get dressed and start her day. So, you know, wound care is a huge part of uh, a person with EB's life, and it can even be four to five hours a day, actually. And it's a very painful, painful procedure. Um, you know, bandaging, rebandaging, taking old bandages off. So that's just one of the daily challenges. There can be challenges. In terms of eating and drinking, there is often um, internal uh, wounds that happen, and um, their throat can dilate uh, because of, of EB. so it's internal and external, and then there's the social um, impact of having EB. There's a lot of isolation. Uh, there are, because it is so rare, a lot of people don't know about it, so there's a lot of questions. There There, there just isn't enough knowledge about it, so... They're dealing with with a lot, actually, of just physical, mental, uh, and social challenges on an everyday basis.
5: And you just going through some of the things that they go through, we can't even imagine how the experience must be. Now, this organization is named after little Mia. Mia has been going through this for a while now. How is she doing?
9: Uh, she's doing really well. She's six years old. Um, she's in school, and she's she's a very active little girl. Um, it is something that she has to deal with, uh, you know, every day and all day, every day. She has periods where she's better and periods where she's worse. Um, often in the summer, it's much harder for her because, uh, in the summer, the warm weather makes the skin more fragile. So she's often dealing with quite a bit. She is the strongest girl I have ever met in my life. And she deals with pain that I can't even comprehend. And she does it with a smile. She finds different ways and a lot of individuals with EB, we've learned, um, find different ways to adapt. They have uh, different ways of doing, of doing things, and they are the most courageous, brave, positive group of people that I have ever met in my life. And Mia is, is, is that. She really is. She's just an incredible little girl and she's doing really, really well.
5: I'm really glad to hear and I can just hear it through your voice how strong Mia is. And Mia, of course, one of several hundred thousands of people across the world that suffer from EB, but here locally at home, since you've now created this group, how do the donations help Mia Thrives?
9: So we have a lot of different programs um, for for people with EB and for the, the greater community and also for caregivers of people with EB. So, um, what we're really trying to do is sort of create a bigger social community so that there isn't the shame and the isolation that has been previously encountered by people with EB. So some of our programs, we have a a podcast, a weekly podcast that we actually put out and we have guests from all over the world with EB talking about their stories, their challenges, their triumphs, um, what it's like thriving with EB. That's our sort of our tagline is, is thriving with EB. We have another series of online videos called EB hacks, which is, Um, sort of offering different tips and tricks for individuals with EB and and their families from other people in the community. So they may have a trick because nobody knows how to, you know, deal with the daily challenges like, like another person with EB or another caretaker. So, we offer the tips and tricks, so different ways of bandaging, something that they might have learned in the past. Maybe an, an older person with EB is teaching a new parent with, you know, a new infant with EB, something that, that worked for them. So that's one of our exciting biweekly um, video series that we have. We have Kaleidoscope Kids, which is a um, series of craft videos done for, for the younger generation, and it's actually Mia who is often starring in the videos. And that's just a way of making um, the wounds on Mia's hands, making EB a little bit more visual and, a little, and sort of normalize it. So someone, a child with EB might be watching one of those videos and seeing Mia doing the, the craft and think, okay, I'm not alone. There's someone else that looks like me out there. We have another program called our butterfly bands, which are bracelets, which we designed to be given out uh, by children with EB when someone might be questioning what it is that they have. So often with Mia someone will say, what's wrong with you, uh, your skin or what, what happened to, her, to you? And it can often be a very uncomfortable situation and, a, and an uncomfortable moment for a child with EB. So these bands are something that they can hand out to someone, it's a gift from them, it's just a little butterfly on a band and it has an information pamphlet with it that talks about what EB is. And just to, to increase knowledge and um, awareness, but in a, a really fun sort of um, easy way. We have a series of books um, that talk about growing up with EB, so starting from infancy, and our goal is to have those in every school, um, library, doctor's office, and hospital all over Canada. They're in several right now. We have them at Sick Kids and several um, school libraries in our community, but we're trying to expand that. Um, and then we have another thing called our Angela's Angel Award, which is an award that is presented annually to a caregiver in the EB community. Uh, this year we actually just handed out three uh, Angels Awards, which uh, was a really exciting because we, we had an amazing donor who wanted to recognize more than one person. So um, during EB Awareness Week, which is in October, we presented those three awards. And we have uh, several events um, during non-COVID years, I should say. So there's lots of different uh, ways that people uh, can get involved and also ways that people can donate and see see their donation going to some really great programs and products.
5: Awesome. And then on that note, of course, if people want to get more information about Mia Thrives, if they want to donate, where can they go for more info?
9: So the best place to go is to our website. We have a really fabulous website. It's got lots of people's stories. You can learn a little bit more and uh, learn a lot about some really incredible people in our community. And also there's a a page there, of course, where you can make a donation. So it's uh, www.miathrives.org.
5: Managing Director for Mia Thrives, Jill Peters. Jill, thank you so much for your time today, helping me better understand what EB is all about, helping our listeners also know what this condition is about, and helping us know how to support children and adults that live with this condition. Jill, thank you again.
9: Thank you so very much
2: for having me.
5: Well, that's it for The Feed, the first one of
2: 2021. More to come, all good. I'm Ann Romer. Thank you for listening.